Good morning, Trinity. We're so glad you're joining us this morning. Scripture today is from Esther chapter 8 and verses 15 through chapter 9 and verse 2. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. Thanks be to God. Good morning, Trinity. It is a privilege to be able to open the Word of God with you. And I want to ask us to go before the Lord one more time and ask His blessing on this time we have together as we look into His Word. Let's pray. Our Father, we are... So thankful that we have your word preserved for us. We thank you that in your word we are given a front row seat to your sovereignty, your majesty, your magnificence, your holiness. We are reminded through your word, of how you have moved throughout human history. And that gives us great comfort for today. Because we know what you've done in the past is a promise and a a picture of what you are doing now. And we are grateful that we are in such loving and capable hands. Thank you so much for this encouraging story that we have been working through. And I just pray this morning as we conclude this book of Esther that we would be a people who are determined to look to you and to be strengthened by you. That we would be confident in our great God. And that we would live lives that point others to Christ. That we would rejoice. That we would be merciful. That we would be a people who are confident in their great God. And whose lives show that. So we ask these things in Christ's name. And by the power of your Holy Spirit we pray. Amen. 
I've been enjoying reliving my childhood uh, over the last few Sundays watching The Last Dance on ESPN with my kids. The Last Dance is a documentary of my childhood hero, Michael Jordan, and its primary focus is on the 1997 and 98 season, which was his 13th and final season with the Bulls. Hands down, the greatest basketball player of all time. Michael Jordan entered six NBA finals and walked away with six titles. And to put that feat into perspective, LeBron James, who is considered the second greatest player of all time, he's entered nine finals, so he's got a few more to his resume, but he's only won three of those nine. When Michael Jordan determined to do something, he set his mind to accomplish the thing that he was after. Michael Jordan was a winner. This past Sunday, there there was a great scene where Jordan addressed his team before they traveled back out to Phoenix for the sixth game of the 1993 finals. Determined to not let the series stretch to a seventh game, Jordan told the team that he was packing light. He was only taking one suit out west, and he challenged the team to do the same. He was determined to win and to return home as soon as possible. The title of today's sermon is When God Wins the Battle. And we've been considering over the last few weeks, even though God is not mentioned in the account of Esther, it's clear he was at work securing the salvation of the Jews from their enemies. We're going to see that in the passage today. As much fun as it is to talk about who the greatest basketball player of all time is, not a whole lot changes for you and I if Michael Jordan is not the winner that we know him to be. If he would have lost an NBA final, he he might have sold a few less high tops. But my life and your life was and is not dependent upon Jordan winning. But this account of Esther has a happy ending because God wins the battle. It's so happy, in fact, that a celebration is established, an annual celebration that continues to this day. God wins the battle, and the response of his people is one of remembrance and thanksgiving. But what if God had not won the battle in Esther? Have you ever thought about that? What would have been the result if God not won and Esther's people been spared? What if Haman's plan would have succeeded and Esther's people had been wiped out? At the center of this book, Esther, and every other move of God in Scripture is his working to keep the covenants he has made with his people. If God had not won the battle here in Esther... The promises that he had made to Abraham would have been voided. There would have been no Jesus who kept the law completely and fulfilled the promises to deliver those who would trust in him. The Jews would have been annihilated and we as Gentiles would have no hope. But God did win the battle and we are going to look at his victory as we wrap up the book of Esther today. So if you're not there already, please turn with me to Esther chapter 8. 
you have found yourself here this morning for the first time and you're just sort of parachuting into the end of the study of Esther and you're not sure where the book of Esther is, grab a Bible and, and turn to the middle of your Bible into Psalms and go back toward the beginning, toward Genesis, past Job, and you'll find yourself in Esther. By the way, again, if you're here for the first time, we are so glad that you have joined us for this worship and, and we look forward to meeting you and and being with those of you who are Trinity members and, and regular attenders, we look forward to that day when we can be back in here all together. You know, it's true that one of the reasons that we have the book of Esther is to explain the origins of the festival of Purim. But we can't meet, miss the lead up in, in moving from the beginnings of this festival at the end of Esther to what it means for us today. What happened to make this festival possible? What is the festival celebrating, and what does the festival point toward? I want us to consider these questions by considering four points. Here they are. The edict, the salvation, the remembrance, and the coming king. If you're taking notes, let me, let me say those one more time. The edict, the salvation the remembrance, and the coming king. So first, the edict. You'll remember there were a number of other edicts from the king that we've already seen, that have already gone out. But let me pause here and, and just say, before we go any further, let me explain how the name of the king will appear today in the text that we're looking at. Our modern translations are divided on what to call Esther's husband, on, on what to call the king of Persia. Some translations, like the NIV that we've used for chapters 1 to 7, refer to him as Xerxes. The ESV, which is the translation that I primarily, primarily use, refers to the Persian king as Ahasuerus. So why the different names? Were these two different men? Are some of the translations mistaken? None of those things. The simple explanation is found in how two different cultures transliterated a difficult name. The Greeks rendered the Persian name as Xerxes, and the Hebrews came up with Ahasuerus. That's it. There, there's nothing more exciting than that. There's no scandal, there's no conspiracy. You just have two cultures who came up with two different renderings of the name. So the difficulty comes in with translation committees for all of the various English translations, having to make a decision on which transliteration they will use. So some like the NIV, which are great translations, went with Xerxes, and some like the ESV, which is a great translation as well, went with Ahasuerus. All right, so back to the edicts. They abound in this book, and in these edicts, we see God's sovereignty and man's responsibility working in concert throughout the account of Esther. It's interesting how the king's edicts tend to lead to the next. Some of these edicts include rules for the party that we saw back in chapter 1, which basically stated there were no rules, right? Just like Outback Steakhouse, no rules, just right. Everyone could do as they wished, including the king who got so drunk that he wrecked his marriage. This led to another edict where he banned his wife Vashti from his presence, which led to another edict paving the way for Esther 
to become queen. Yet another edict Ashwaris issued was instigated by the king's official Haman. And so we've already covered this, but just in case you're hearing this for the first time, Haman had been promoted by King Ahasuerus. Mordecai, who's Esther's cousin, would bow to Haman. And knowing Mordecai to be a Jew, Haman set out to destroy not only Mordecai, but all of Mordecai's people. Haman convinced the king that he should order the destruction of the Jews. And the result is seen in chapter 3, verse 10. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Haman gathered the king's scribes who wrote letters sealing the fate of the Jews. The letters were delivered throughout King Ahasuerus' kingdom, which was vast. And almost one year from the edict being issued, the Jews would be no longer according to Haman's plan. And that brings us to the edict in chapter 8. Even though Haman had been put to death, the Jews are still at risk of being destroyed. The king's edict has gone out, and the king's edict could not be undone. And this is documented in other places, like the book of Daniel with another Persian king. We saw this in chapter 1 when we heard that Persian laws could not be repealed. And we see it here today in chapter 8, where the king agrees to the edict that would protect the Jews. So the way you overcome, that you overcame intended consequences of one edict was to issue a new one. That's how we see things unfold here in chapter 8. So look at verse 1 with me of chapter 8. On that day, the day that Haman was put to death, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. In other words, now the king knows that Mordecai is a Jew as well. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept. And pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite in the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, if it pleased the king, and if it found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes... Let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman. And they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. 
And that's exactly what they did. The king's scribes were called up, and with Mordecai's help, the edict was written and delivered throughout the 127 provinces of Persia. This edict of the king gave permission for the Jews to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them. This edict included the right for the Jews to plunder the goods of their enemies. This language was identical to the orders that had been given earlier through Haman for the Jews' destruction. We're told the edict written by Mordecai on behalf of the king was delivered to the reigning officials throughout the land as well as to the Jews in their own script and language, and that's really important. The contents of the edict were to be publicly displayed, and the Jews were to be ready to take vengeance on their enemies. The day this was set to take place was on the same day Haman had determined the Jews would be destroyed. So the stage was set. All of the pieces were in place, and only time would tell what the result would be. But there was a hint of hope in the air. Before, back in chapter 3, when Haman had issued the edict on behalf of the king, the immediate result was chaos. The text says the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. We saw that in chapter 3, verse 15. Notice the difference, though, in chapter 8. Look at verse 15. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. The city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. You have two very different edicts portrayed here in Esther. One from Haman that is satanically crafted for the destruction of a people group based solely on their ethnicity. The other from Mordecai that is in keeping with God's plan to preserve his people for the good of the nations. Friends, notice the connection between Satan's plans and resulting chaos versus God's plans and righteous celebration and joy. Why celebration and joy? Because this is the intended result of God's plan for human flourishing. Don't we see this very thing being played out today around the world on political stages? Very often you have one platform that is bent on the destruction of life. And you have another platform that is committed to preserving life. Chaos versus human flourishing. I can't help but see the similarity to another edict that has gone out. This one from God our King. The good news that follows this king results in rejoicing too. Listen to the beginning of Psalm 105. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. When we obey the edict of God to turn from ourselves and to turn toward him, the response is rejoicing. 
Our rejoicing in God affects others. Look at verse 17. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. In other words, the Gentiles wanted to be under the umbrella of God's protection. They saw the the gladness and the rejoicing of God's people, and they wanted to be a part of that. So in the same way that the literal fear of God was put into those who saw the Jews rejoicing and declared themselves Jews, our rejoicing in our great God can be used of God to draw others to faith in Christ. Friends, people are watching our lives. They are listening to us. Is our joy in the Lord enough to get their attention? The attention of our neighbors, of our family, of those we work with. God has issued an edict of good news in his son, Jesus. Has this resulted in gladness and joy for you? This edict from King Ahasuerus, it leads to our second point, and, and that is the salvation that we see in chapter 9. Look with me beginning in verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and the edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All of the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews. For the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. The enemies of the Jews were poised to wipe them out. But on the very day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the text says the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Salvation for the Jews, the salvation from their enemies that we see here in this text, it was costly for their enemies. Unless we are led to think that this was some awful thing carried out by the Jews, we've got to remember this was an act of self-defense. It was self-preservation. So we should see a few things that the text makes clear. The edict from the king gave the Jews permission to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. But notice how the Jews reacted to their enemies. Though they were allowed to kill children and women, we're told they only took action against men. 
though they were allowed to plunder the goods of their enemies, the text says three times in verse 10 and verse 15 and in verse 16, but they laid no hand on the plunder. Repetition in in scripture is very important. It's, It's used to get our attention. And we've got to understand Jews did not see this battle as a means of benefiting from the riches and goods of their enemies. They used restraint and extended mercy where it could be extended. Salvation of the Jews from their enemies, it reminds us of another work of God's salvation. That being his son, Jesus. This of the Jews' restraint and mercy towards their enemies. It reminds us of restraint and mercy that have been shown to us in our salvation. So do we, in turn, extend mercy toward others? Are there times where we are well within our rights to respond in a certain way to someone who has harmed us, but instead show them mercy because in that instance, it's the right thing to do? Just as we saw earlier that our rejoicing will be seen by others, so too can acts of mercy. Jesus teaches this very thing in the Gospels. Matthew five fourteen, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Or in Luke 6.35, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. The language used in chapter 9, it makes clear that the Jews were defending themselves. Even saying in verse 16, that they got relief from their enemies. The total amount of casualties given in the text was 75,810. And this is a shocking number and one that reveals the heavy price associated with sin. God won the battle, and like the enemies of the Jews, the enemies of God will ultimately be dealt with. As the Jews were in need of salvation from their enemies, we are in need of salvation from our sin. From beginning to end, the message of the Bible is that we have sinned against God and are in desperate need of His forgiveness. From birth, of salvation from our sin. We, like the enemies of the Jews, are enemies of God who have earned death because of our sin. As we noticed, had the Jews not been saved here in the book of Esther, God's covenants would have been voided. There would be no Savior. There would be no hope. But God. These are Paul's words in Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, 
carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together. By grace, you have been saved. Do you know this Have you received the grace of God through Christ Jesus and been made alive in Him? We have examined the king's edict. We have seen the Jews' salvation. And we now turn to the remembrance. This is our third point, the remembrance. The Jews' salvation had been secured, and, and fittingly, their natural response on the day of, after their victory was celebration. It was a holiday, a, a day of rest, and a day of sending gifts to one another. This celebration has continued up to today, and, and as a Jewish festival that takes place every February or March. How did this become an annual remembrance? Look at chapter 9, verse 20. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them. And it cast pure, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year. That these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city. And that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. The the festival is known as Purim, named after the lots that Haman cast to secure the Jews' destruction. Purim is a, a celebration of the great reversal. It's a remembrance of God's faithfulness to His covenant promises. And this remembrance is emphasized again in verses 29 to 32, where Queen Esther issues a second letter to underscore the importance of Purim. Remembrance was important for the Jews, and it is important for Christians as well. We as Christians are not instructed to observe Purim. 
There's no mandate from Scripture for Christians to observe the Jewish festivals, yet we are to remember. But what are we remembering? We heard from Paul earlier in Ephesians 2, and he helps us again here in the same chapter. We read this, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh... Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Remembrance for the Jews reminded them it was not their cleverness, their, their skill that provided their salvation. Were it not for God and his intervention through Mordecai and Esther, the Jewish people would have been destroyed. Remembrance for the Christian, it reminds us that were it not for God and his intervention through Jesus, we would remain dead in our sin. One commentator has said, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our destiny has been reversed from death to life against all expectation. The cross of Jesus Christ is the pivot point of the great reversal of history, where our sorrow has been turned to joy. Remembrance is important because we have experienced the great reversal of history. Standing condemned to death, Jesus took our sentence upon himself and he died And remembering that God has designed and secured our salvation in Christ, we are compelled to live for God. So have you experienced this great salvation? Are you regularly remembering what God has done for you in Christ? And are you being compelled to live a life that is honoring to God? The edict, the salvation the remembrance, and lastly, the coming king. This is our final point, the coming king. Chapter 10 serves as an epilogue, and it brings resolution to this wild ride that we've been on in Esther. As often happens in Scripture, where the central figure fades to the background and another figure becomes prominent, Esther's spotlight moves from her to Mordecai. Rather than focusing on Esther and her success as queen, the book concludes with a close-up of Mordecai's success. The kingdom's economy is back up and running after the remission of taxes back in chapter 2. This is probably the signal that the king was flourishing under the advisement of Mordecai. And we are left with this happy picture of a good leader. For Mordecai, the Jew, was second in rank to King Ahasuerus. And he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. The Jews had been preserved, and the promise, promises of God, the covenants of God, they continue. God has won the battle. And this is confirmed by the fact that a Jew who was certain to be killed earlier in the book is now second in command of all Persia. 
Mordecai was great and popular among the people because he sought their welfare and spoke peace. And just as the spotlight shifted from Esther to Mordecai, these closing words, they foreshadow another shifting of the spotlight. As the Old Testament gave way to the New Testament, the spotlight would eventually find its way to Jesus. And just as Mordecai mediated peace under his rule, Christ Jesus mediates peace under his So when God wins the battle, Esther is an encouraging reminder that God won the battle. It's such an encouragement that central to the festivities every year when celebrating Purim, the book of Esther is read out loud. Esther is a reminder to us of when God won the battle. But here's a spoiler alert for us. God also wins the war. Battles are significant. They, they're important because one lost battle can make or break your ability to win the war. But hear me, every battle that our God enters into, he wins. The coming King Jesus is our assurance of that and, and proof that what often looks like certain defeat for God and us is no defeat at all. It's our assurance that God will win the war that helps us in dark days like the ones that we're in. As I've spoken with many of you over this past week, I've been reminded that it's much easier for us to be afraid than to be bold. Especially when almost all of the news that we hear is doom and gloom. As soon as we begin to see the smallest glimmer of hope, the smallest dot of light at the end of the tunnel with respect to coronavirus, we we get bombarded with headlines about giant murder hornets that have invaded the U.S. You can't make this stuff up. Friends, the, the world loves to sell fear, and we have a choice. We can buy the hype, cave into the fear, or we can hitch our hopes to the covenant keeping God. I'm praying for better days, and I'm hopeful that they will return for all of us, and soon. Until they do, it can be difficult to remember that God wins his battles, and that ultimately he wins the war. No matter what comes our way, we know that our prayers are always answered in keeping with God's keeping his covenants. What he has promised, it will come to pass. And that you can bank your eternity on. The king is coming, but until then, know that God in Christ and through the Holy Spirit will hold you. We're going to close with a a song called, He Will Hold Me Fast. It's been reworked here recently by a young man named Matt Merker. But originally, it was written by Ada Habershon and Robert Harkness. It's an old song, originally written in 1906. So I want you to listen to this brief account by Harkness on how the song came to be. During a campaign in Toronto, Canada, and again, this was in 1906, a young convert with whom I was dealing expressed the fear that he would not be able to hold out. Does that sound familiar? Does that resonate with any of you? A day or two later, in a letter to Miss Ada Habershon, 
of London, I mentioned the need for a song which would give definite assurance of success in the Christian life. The weeks passed, and a couple of months later, during a campaign in Philadelphia, USA, I received a batch of seven new songs written by Miss Habersham. As Dr. Torrey preached his sermon one afternoon, he has here uh, in parentheses, instead of listening, which I do not recommend, I occupied the time in setting the seven lyrics to music. One of these was, He Will Hold Me Fast. The same evening, it was introduced by our music director to an audience of 4,000 people. Its success was immediate, and it has continued to be a great favorite. He concludes by saying it has been translated into many languages. Friends, remember this. God wins the battle. He wins every battle that he enters into, and he will win the war. He is holding you fast, and he will continue to hold you fast. Let's pray. Our Father, we rejoice over this good news that we have read in Esther. We give you thanks for how you sovereignly saved your people. How you were at work all along. And how your people were able to prevail over their enemies. And because of that, your covenant, your your promises that you have made, they remain intact. And because of that, Christ Jesus came. And because of that, we ourselves can have hope in him. We can have hope that he will deliver us from our sin and that he will hold us fast. We give you great thanks for how deeply you love us and care for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.